So I got to speak to Darbo yesterday, the pastor that's been working with us in Senegal. He has been in the village now uh, for four weeks. Uh, Some of that was our doing, and some of it was uh, the missionaries that we're working with there had some work for him to do. And then a team from South Haven uh, was there, and he has... He said it was amazing. Uh, I look forward to hearing more about what went on there. Uh, It was late for him, and so I didn't pry for too many details. But please continue to work, to pray for the work we're doing there. Uh, It is, um, man, it's necessary. If we're not doing it, there's really not anybody else going to, to get it done. And so we are blessed by God to be a part of that work in that place. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12 today, verses 13 through 21. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn there, open your apps, get on the Version live event. If you don't have your own Bible, the Bible's in the chairs in front of you. It's on page 871, but if you don't have your own Bible, I'd encourage you to take one with you. Jesus has been confronting um, Pharisees and, and, and the religious leaders of the day, and Sometimes he did that really directly, really confrontationally, like he would get in their face. He would, he would just basically kick them in the teeth with his truth and show them their lies. Uh, for example, back in chapter, Luke chapter 11, as we begin to see this divide between them growing, Jesus says that they are like unmarked graves in verse 44 of chapter 11. In verse 40, uh, or I'm sorry, verse 39, Jesus says that, that, they, are, that they clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of wickedness and greed. So he's sometimes very direct with them. But even when he's not confronting them directly, he's still opposed to the legalistic hypocrisy that, that, that uh, is the pattern of their life. In fact, even when he's not opposing them directly, he is opposing them and their way of life and their beliefs in his Teaching, and that's really what we saw last week. The essence of, <clears throat> excuse me, the essence of his teaching last week was was teaching his disciples not to be influenced by, actually to beware of hypocrisy, to avoid it because it will consume you. And it's kind of into the middle of that teaching that today's passage falls. <clears throat> Maybe in a way, it's seeming it might seem that it would distract Jesus, but he picks it up and runs with it as a. Because he's a master teacher. If somebody did to me what you're about to see happen to him, I don't know what would happen. I guess you can try it if you'd like. But um, it, he, just, he just keeps going. Well, let's just read it and you'll see what I'm talking about. And then you'll see, we'll see what the Lord has for us. He says in verse, or it says in verse 13 of chapter 12, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops, my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for you many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one 
who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We don't know if avoiding greed was going to be Jesus' next point in his teaching outline, right? I mean, he gets interrupted. He is teaching. He's talking about hypocrisy. And in the middle of it, this guy decides to ask a question. He didn't ask the question because of the content of Jesus' teaching. Probably if he had been listening to the content of Jesus' teaching, then he would have been then he would have been thinking, well, this is not the right time to ask this question. But his mind is so preoccupied with possessions, he's not listening to what Jesus has to say. He's there for one reason, to get what he wants, to get what he thinks is due him, to get Jesus to make some ruling in his life. This mind is ate up. He is preoccupied completely with possessions. But it's not just this guy that's preoccupied with possessions, right? It's his brother, too. The brother may have been the older one. He may have been the one who was deserving or, or, or by law would, would have received the inheritance naturally. But he's so stingy for it. He's so greedy with it. so preoccupied with possessing things that he won't share. The truth is that both of these brothers are pr- pr- prioritizing possessions over people. That's a lot of P's. It's kind of a tongue twister. Sorry about that. Prioritizing property over people. And see, now there's this wedge being driven between these two men. Now, you've probably heard stories like this. Maybe you're familiar with people who have argued over the, the, uh, the, the inheritance left in a will. Maybe you, have, maybe you have been privy to or been a part of a, the reading of a will where everybody's angry because they didn't get what they thought they had coming. Or, or maybe when there's not been a will, maybe you've known people who have argued over what's left in a, a deceased parent or grandparent's house. No, I want that. No, that's mine. I loved that when I was a kid. I remember one of the things I think is... is all right, one of the things that could have been an issue is a stupid, silly little man bent. He was made out of nails. He was bent out of these big nails, and he was uh, standing on one leg, and he was holding a balance beam again, all built out of nails, just bent and, and shaped in the shape of a man standing on a high wire holding a balance beam. And when we were kids at my grandparents' house, we used to love playing with that thing. It stood on the head of a nail, and, and you could spin it, and you could knock it back and forth, but because it was balanced. And, and I remember seeing that and when my grandmother passed away, thinking, I want that. And hearing my sister say, I want that. I'm not even really a sentimental person, and that thing that really has no value, but we all wanted it. And we could have fought over it. Well, thankfully, we didn't, especially something so small. But maybe you've known people that do this. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've experienced it. But an inheritance and the things left after a person's death are not the only times that we fight over things. It's not the only time that possessions pit us against one another, is it? I mean, probably you've heard the saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. Seemingly an insignificant saying, but but it speaks to the heart of the condition of man. It's originally attributed to a guy named Malcolm Forbes. I don't know if you've ever heard of him before, uh, but he was a rich man, I think, which you could assume from his saying. He, he wouldn't have said that as a poor guy, you know. He wouldn't have said, as a poor man, he wouldn't have said, he who dies with the most toys wins. When he died in 1990, he is estimated to, uh, by Encyclopedia Britannica to be worth somewhere between $400 million and $1 
billion dollars. Now that's a big spread, and I don't know, maybe they just had a hard time counting all of his stuff. I'm not certain, but somewhere between 400 million and 1 billion dollars. He died in 1990, and I'm confident, I am confident that if we could talk to him today, that he'd say he didn't win anything just because he had a lot of toys. In fact, Jesus' teaching doesn't seem to support Forbes' perspective at all, does it? I mean, if we were to take Forbes' perspective and try to wrap it around the teaching that Jesus has given here, I think we'd have to say something like, the one who dies having pursued the most toys is going to be the one who's most disappointed in the end when they do nothing for him and they find themselves empty-handed. And seemingly insignificant and harmless as that saying might be, the truth is this kind of attitude pits us against one another because it makes us about getting this life about getting more stuff. Not just more stuff for yourself, but more stuff than anyone else. Here's the thing. We were created to enjoy abundance. We have this desire because it was hardwired into us. It was knit into us from the very beginning. Imagine Adam and Eve in a garden that had been designed, in a, in a, in a world that had been designed to, to, to bring them joy, to give them the sense of satisfaction. They were left with no wants. Every tree was theirs. All things belonged under them. Nothing withheld except one little tree. But it wasn't just about stuff. It wasn't just about the things that they were able to enjoy. There was no strife. There was no, no, there was no division. There was no separation. There was no possessions that were more important than the other people in, in, in the garden. And they were to, together naked and without shame. But more than what they were able to enjoy on this horizontal plane, in, in an unhindered, in an un, in, an un, uh, unhindered way, they were able to enjoy the fullness of the presence of the God who created them. That's the abundance that we were created to enjoy. We were created to know the fullness of this. There would be nothing that separated us from enjoying God in all of his goodness and all of his glory and all of his greatness. But enter sin. And we lost it. We didn't just lose it, though. In our fall into sin, we didn't just lose this stuff. We lost the very fact that we deserve it. The, the very right to have it was taken from us by our sin and by the rebellion against this God who created. What wasn't removed, what we didn't lose, was the desire to have it all. It's the very 
desire, the very thing that Jesus is warning against in his response to these two men is this desire that still resides in the sinful man to have everything he doesn't deserve. But which he will go to all lengths to gain for himself. And he says, as he's interrupted, Jesus will not serve as mediator. He will not serve as their arbiter. He will not stand in this place between these two people arguing over such stupid and foolish things. But he will teach them. And in mercy, in an act of unbelievable mercy and grace, he showed them the dangerous, the danger of covetousness. The word translated covetousness is pleonexia. It means greedy desire to have more, covetousness, avarice. And, and I, I'm just going to be honest, I had to look up avarice because I didn't know what it meant on my own. Like I could use it in a sentence, but I didn't really know what it meant, so I probably would have used it wrong. Extreme greed, an inordinate desire to have things. Vine's expository dictionary notes that the word is used to demonstrate desire for more. Always in a bad way, in a bad sense. I just thought I'd show you some of those before we move on. Mark 7, 21 through 23, Jesus is teaching about what defiles a man comes out of his heart, not what comes into him, but what comes out of him. He says in verse 21 through 23, For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, adultery, mur theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Now, it's easy to see theft and murder and adultery. Okay, well, that's, that's pretty bad stuff, but just wanting more. is laid in on that list next to these things that would be so easy to say are evil. Romans 1, 29, Paul is teaching out of, he's, he's told, the, the, told us how people had rejected God, how they had exchanged the truth for a lie, they had replaced the creator with the creation, and that they had been given over to the darkness of their own hearts and minds, and he lists out this list of, of sins that became the, the consequence, or not the consequence, the symptom of that deeper sin. An extensive list, probably not an exhaustive one, but an extensive one. And in verse 29, he says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Again, nothing, no difference, no, no, no distinction between covetousness and things like murder. If, the list, if you were to read the list uh, on, you would see that it, 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 it mentions uh, disobedience to parents. Uh, no, no difference in these things. And if you re read the beginning of the list, you see sexual immorality at the top and leading. The reality is in this list, there's symptoms of, the, of a deeper issue. This is not something that I think is being told we should be might be the reality of who we are apart from him, though. 
2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. Peter's referencing false teachers and the people that would follow after them. False teachers that raised up from within the church. This is not those who are attacking the church from the outside. These are people who would have been seen as, uh, as brothers and sisters in the faith. False teachers that raise up from the, within and lead people astray. Peter says, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. That's the same word that's been being read, covetousness. Accursed children. As I read some of these passages, it dawned on me, though, just how normal, how normal this is in the world we live in. In fact, it's not just normal, it's acceptable. And it's not just acceptable, we actually promote it like the the pursuit of the American dream. And we encourage people to go out and make the most of themselves, to go out and build their own kingdoms. We don't recognize this for what it is, the danger that it is. We don't recognize how pursuing the American dream is a a pathway to death. We We don't realize how the lies of the prosperity gospel have invaded the depths of our heart. By the way, that is no gospel. It's empty. But because within each and every one of us, in our flesh, apart from Christ, is a greedy heart that seeks to fill the void that has been left by losing our right to sin, Jesus warns us to beware, to be on guard, to watch out not just against covetousness or, or I'm going to use the word today, greed, because it it's a whole lot less, <laughs> less syllables. It's easier to say. To be on guard against greed and not just, not just the greed for money, but all kinds of it. Every way that we're greedy for, for, for selfish gain. Every way that we're greedy to establish ourselves whether it's time or money or, or people. To watch out. To be on guard. And first, I'd like to just point out that greed is dangerous. The danger of this greed that Jesus warns us about is not in the possession of wealth, but in the insatiable desire for more. Go back to the passage and look. He is not condemning having stuff. He is not saying that this man was called fool because he was rich. He was not saying that this man was, was being left empty-handed because he was simply able to possess a lot. Jesus is not demonizing wealth There are plenty of people in the scriptures, highlighted across the scriptures, that had a lot, that had a lot of wealth. Job was a rich man, and in the end of his story, when you read it, when when you read its fullness of his story, not only did he have a lot, but he lost a lot, and then God gave him a lot back. David was a rich man. But the things we read about David were not his sin because of his wealth. 
is because he was an adulterer and a murderer. Solomon. He was so rich that people came to look at his riches. But again, that's not the fault that was held against him. In the end of his life, it was because he ran off with all these other women and started to uh, follow after their gods. The reality is, it is not a sin to be rich. And it's wrong of us to demonize rich people or to elevate being poor simply because we don't like being poor. The issue Jesus is demonstrating, the problem he's telling us to beware of is not having stuff. It's being greedy to have more stuff. I came across this quote as I was preparing this sermon. I've never heard of this guy. I probably won't say his name properly. Jan Willem Van de Wettering or Vettering. I don't, I don't know. Uh, you, you can tell me if I'm wrong later. But the reality is I love I loved this quote that he, he was quoted in an article in Christianity Today. He says, greed is a fat demon with a small mouth. I don't know if he emphasizes it the same way, but that's the way I read it. Greed is a fat demon with a small mouth. And whatever you feed it is never enough. Never enough. Never being satisfied. You get a little bit, you need some more. You get some more, you need even more. You get even more, and you got to have more. Never finding Satisfaction, this insatiable desire to have more stuff. It's dangerous. Jesus warns us against it. Second, I'd like to point out that the danger of greed is, is depicted here is not in the possession of wealth, but in finding in it our value, our satisfaction, and our security. Jesus says the essence of life is not found in possessions. Beware of covetousness because the, the, the essence of life, real life, is not found in what you own. More stuff doesn't equate to more life. Oh, but I could do more. How far does that get you? Less stuff doesn't equate to less life. More stuff doesn't mean God loves you more. Less stuff doesn't mean that God loves you less. And vice versa. Because the reality is, is that the rich people are on one side saying, oh, I must be better than you because look at how God has blessed me with all this stuff. And the poor people are on the other side saying, oh, God must love me because he is not, he is not heaping on me the trouble with all that stuff. That's putting possession in the wrong place. That's elevating it to a position it doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, uh, need or it doesn't deserve. More stuff doesn't mean that God has cursed you or loved you. Less stuff doesn't mean God has cursed you or loved you. I like... Uh, Come on, Seth. I want to say Alistair, Alistair McGrath. That's not right. Alexander McLaren wrote these words in his comments on this passage. It is 
eminently true that real life of a man has little relation to what he possesses. Neither nobleness, nor peace, nor satisfaction, nor anything in which a man lives a nobler life than a dog has much dependence on property of any sort. Covetousness is folly because it grasps at worldly good under the false belief that thereby it will secure the true good of life. But when it has made its pile, it finds that it is no near peace of heart rest, nobleness, or joy than before. And it's probably lost much of both in the process of making it. And somewhere along the way, we got all twisted up and determined that rich people are better off in life than, than, than poor people, or that poor people are in some way missing out on the blessings and abundance of knowing God. And we have misconstrued the idea that just because we have stuff, we have been blessed by God. That is so wrong. That is a lie. It is a lie of prosperity preachers. It is a lie of, of, of false prophets. Let me, just, let me just share a story recently. It's actually out of Senegal that in, in a way in which this worked out. Bana was this man who, who we have been speaking with in this particular village over and over. For years we've been dealing with him in the, in the, in the family compound with which he lives. There have been some believers come out and Bana is now the leader of that compound. And last year when I was there we left him a, a card that had the Bible on it. And he promised if we would get him a radio, an SD card, if in case you, it's not like a playing card, an SD card that had the Bible on it in audio. And, and he promised if we would get him a radio, he would play the Bible in his compound every day. Well, we don't know if he did it every day, but we could tell based on his conversations with him when we were back this last year that he had been playing it every day. And Bana had determined that they had had this bumper crop, that they had experienced this abundance of stuff. And he, he steps out. We were sitting under this awning that is, it's not really an awning. It's, it's really a bunch of bamboo and sticks that are stacked, built around so that they can have some shade and also use it to store their, store their harvest on. And he stepped out and he pointed at all of these, of these awnings around the compound. And he points at them all and he's talking about how they had received such an abundance because they'd been listening to the Bible. Just so you know, Bana refused to follow the truths of the gospel. He would not leave Islam. But because he was listening to the Bible, he was convinced that God had blessed them abundantly. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't trust in the Savior that it pointed to. And as I listened to him, we celebrated, we celebrated the abundant blessing. Obviously, he wouldn't have it all, all that he had, if God hadn't given it, right? Like if God hadn't allowed it, it wouldn't be there. We celebrated that with him. But ringing in my ears is this story of a rich fool who counts his blessings based on what he has. My fears for Bono are twofold. What happens next year if you don't get as much rain? You don't have as much stuff sitting on top of your awnings. 
Will you begin to deny the truth of Scripture because you're already denying it because you won't follow Christ? Is your, is your celebrating of the God who provides only because he gave you what you wanted? But not just that. Bonna was just one of several compounds we left the Bible SD cards in so that people could be listening to. Was it, was it his devotion to listen? Was it just better than everybody else's so God blessed his? See how his misplaced devotion or misplaced celebration of abundance was, was, was all circulating around the stuff rather than the God who has the ability to give and take away, who has the right to give and take away? God is able. And he does bless with an abundance. But he's blessed us abundantly and not an ounce of it is measured in stuff. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. He has not withheld anything from his children that they need. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And you cannot measure that in dollars and cents. But there is nothing you are lacking. He has given you all you need for life and godliness. All you need. There's not something lacking. There's not something missing. All you need for life and godliness. And not one ounce of that is because you have a nice car in your garage or have the newest iPhone in your pocket. Or in Bonna's case, a stack of food that's more than they can eat themselves on top of an awning in Africa. We are believing a lie if we think the things that we possess prove God's blessings and his approval of us. It is all, every ounce of it, our value, our security, our satisfaction are now tied up in the cross of Jesus Christ and him and him alone. That is it. It is if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, what will he not give us? The cross is our, is our metric now. It's the way we measure blessing. Does God love me? Think of the cross. Is God going to secure me forever? Think of the cross. Is God protecting me? Is he going to satisfy me fully? Think the cross. We are trying to squeeze, we're trying to squeeze out these natural innate desires out of a world that is incapable of satisfying us. Jesus is warning us against that. We are seeking to gain the security and the sense of protection and peace in our life from a world that is failing and falling and crumbling around us. We are seeking to measure ourselves against one another based on how much money we have in the bank and how many rooms we have in our house and how many cars are parked in our garage. They will leave us wanting. 
Jesus warns against this. This is not what life is made up of. And he begins to teach a parable. Think of this rich man. This man who had so much. He couldn't even, he couldn't even store it all. So he's got to figure out a way to, just to, to hang on to it, to not lose it. See, the danger of greed is not in the possession of wealth, but in making what can be a good thing a God thing. This man just wasn't trying to seek to take from his wealth. He wasn't just seeking value and identity and security and satisfaction from his wealth. But his wealth began to drive him. And he quit owning it, and it began to own him. I can't lose this. I, I can't, I, 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 I don't have enough place to put this. I can't, I can't lose it. I'm going to tear down all of my barns and my, my silos, and I'm going to build bigger ones. His whole existence, his life became not about what God would have for him but what he must do to enjoy life through his wealth. And then his wealth began to guide him. See, that's the logical extension. You own a car, right? You go buy a car. And you don't own that car anymore. It begins to own you. Because you've got payments to make, you've got insurance to pay, you've got maintenance to be done on it. That's the way it works in this world. We bought this building in a drought. And suddenly we found it had a bunch of leaks when it rained the next year. We thought we owned a building. But in a way it owns us. If we put so much hope in it, so much trust in it, we build our whole lives around it, We no longer own those possessions. They begin to own us. And what happens is these things that could be good, because in, in, this building's not bad. It's not evil to have a building. It's not bad to have money in your bank. It's not bad to have uh, an abundance of crops. These are good things. But when we quit just owning them and begin looking for our value and our satisfaction and our security from them, they, they cease to be things that we own, and they begin to be things that own us. No longer do we seek just to get from them. We build our whole life, our whole existence around keeping them. Paul points this out more explicitly in his letter to the Colossians. He writes, put to death, therefore, this is Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Greed, it doesn't it, it, just continue seeking to get more. It begins to lead us to a place in ourselves where, where, where we don't, not only do we not ever have enough, but the things that we have, we must keep them or else we lose ourselves. They become gods to us. Possessions, though, make a pitiful, pitiful God. But our greed at every turn would displace goods for God. John Piper is helpful here, as he so often is. 
He says, the great hindrance to worship is not that we are pleasure-seeking people, but that we are willing to settle for such pitiful pleasure. The great barrier to worship among God's people is not that we are always seeking our own satisfaction, but that our seeking is so weak and half-hearted that we settle for little sips at broken cisterns with the fountain of life just over the next hill. Greed certainly seeks its value, its satisfaction, and security in these weak and broken cisterns. But not only does it seek those things, as this comes full circle, it never leaves them. But rather, greed gives itself completely to making all of its life about these things. It's not that we don't worship, it's that we begin to worship these things instead of the God who deserves our worship. Greed never settles for what it can get, but always leads us. To making goods gods. It's dangerous. It's deadly. And finally, the fourth thing I think we can see, the danger of greed is not in the possession of wealth, but in its opposition to generosity and gratitude. Jesus closes his teaching. He, he tells the parable and he sums it up with this sentence. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So there's this picture of this rich man who has seemingly everything by the world's standards. I can sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. And God shows up, you fool. You fool. You still have to answer to me. This God that you gave yourself to sustaining is failing you. Your wealth leaves you wanting. And so it is with everyone who seeks to build his own kingdom, who seeks to establish his own self, but is not rich toward God. See, greed is insatiable. And because it is, there is never enough. You are never satisfied. Every little bit you have, you need more. It is a demon with a small mouth who is never full. Is never satisfied. Because greed is the essence of life, we must cling to everything we have because greed has displaced God's with good. We are stuck. The danger of greed is not in the possession of wealth, but it's in opposition to generosity and gratitude. We no longer can be grateful toward God if we are greedy. So gratitude is the is the expression of a heart that realizes it's been given enough. You ever gotten a Christmas present and been like, oh, thanks, and put on a fake smile, and, you know, like the pink bunny suit in the Christmas story, so, so excited for what the aunt gave, and it turns out, you know, it's this horrible gift, but he's made to wear it. That's not satisfaction. That's not helpful. Real gratitude comes from a heart that realizes what it has been given and been blessed with is abundant. It's satisfied. It's content. And the natural response, the natural expression is thank you. Man, this is such a blessing. I'm so grateful for this. I'm so amazed by this. This is amazing. It's never followed up by another list of what you think you still need. But because greed is all that we've talked about it being, Our list never gets filled. 
Not only can we not be grateful towards God, but we can't be generous towards Him. We can't be rich in our, in, in our gratitude, nor can we be rich in our generosity. Because what we have, we have to keep. What happens if I give this away and tomorrow I need it? Is God not the God of tomorrow the same as he's the God of today? Well, what happens if, if I give this away and uh, I won't have it? Is your possession so important to you that you would let someone suffer because, because you have to hang on to your goods? That is a greedy heart. I can't give 10% of my paycheck to the church. They're just always wanting money. They won't use it as good as I will anyway. I've been wrestling with whether to use this illustration or not. And I think I have to. I don't want, as I, as I use it, I don't want you to hear me condemning the trivia night tonight. That's not the point, or spaghetti dinners that we do for Senegal. But what kind of heart says, I'll give you money when you do something that allows me to get something for what I give you? See, Boy Scouts, they do fundraisers. Girl Scouts do fundraisers. They sell their popcorn and their cookies, and everybody's excited about that. Civic uh, uh, clubs do fundraisers. Why aren't we so grateful that God's gospel is going forward, that we aren't waiting for a trivia night or a spaghetti dinner to fund the mission so that people? can go. Greed is dangerous. And so long as greed resides in us, we cannot be grateful toward our God and we cannot be generous toward our God. But the outcome It's frightening. So it is. With the man who lays up treasures for himself. Look, there's plenty of people that have been generous. There's one, one person in our church who paid for a person's trip last time. There's another person who's paid, the same person actually committed to pay for another person's trip this time. But as many times as those links have been shared, donate. Please, I, I'm not trying to be harsh about this. But we are people who have been given a mission, who have been called to go. And God has blessed abundantly, who are lacking for nothing. 
who are still in many ways seeking to hang on to the trifles that this world has to offer. If we're not going to be satisfied with what we have been given in Christ, then let me promise you this, you will never be satisfied. But, but, the very reason Jesus came is so that we can enjoy all that we were created in the beginning to enjoy. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Looking forward to the coming Messiah, looking forward to what God would do through his Savior, the psalmist is looking forward to enjoying all that God would have. It's no coincidence, I think, that Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father waiting for his command to come and get his bride. In him is our satisfaction. In him are the pleasures forevermore. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Make him preeminent priority, the, 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 the fulfillment of all your desires. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We so often leave off that first half thinking about the desires that this world has to offer and forgetting that when we delight ourselves in the Lord, we will be given all that we long for, all that we desire, all that has been removed from us at creation, and the things that we have no right to anymore will be graciously and abundantly bestowed upon us. We will walk in the presence of our God. Not separated by dim, dark glass from his goodness or his greatness or his glory. We will no longer experience strife and frustration among the people of God. And the creation will fall to that, to that place in priority that has always been supposed to fall. It will serve us, and we will serve it to the glory of our God. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus isn't opposed to an abundance but there's an abundance that is a blessing and there's an abundance that we give ourselves to that kills us, that destroys us, that, that removes us even further from the blessings of our God. You see, Jesus, he's offered us something. But it's not a bigger house. It's not fancier cars. It's not more iPhones or Android, I don't know, whatever phone you're carrying in your pocket. What he's promised is that in himself, we are abundantly blessed. I'm going to close with this quote from C.S. Lewis. You've heard it before. I've used it before. And I guarantee you I'll use it again. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, the unblushing, staggering nature of the rewards. Like, I, don't, I, I can't use words big enough. 
I don't know that C.S. Lewis could either. If we consider these rewards that are offered in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. After today, in light of Jesus' teaching, my prayer is that we won't be. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us take our eyes off of these temporary, simple things, these trifles, these powerless, impotent, deceptive, physical treasures. That we might enjoy them in the proper place. That we might enjoy your creation because we delight so much in you. That we might enjoy an abundance because it's no longer the place we find our value. It's no longer what we look to for our security or our satisfaction. Help us. Help us not be pleased with things that will never please us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.